0: Hi everyone, I'm Raghu Marcus and this is Ramdas here and now. And on this podcast, uh, this is a bit of a continuation, although it's a completely different talk, part of a talk, uh, than uh, last uh, podcast. It is also a series of questions and answers. And this one, we just had to do this because uh, it's got so many different such a variety, it's a smorgasbord, smorgasbord, something like that, of uh, topics uh, that are extraordinarily practical and helpful, Uh, separation uh, in relationship, dealing with fear, abortion, Uh, I'm listing them, addiction, in this case, uh, cigarettes. How does one know when one has out-of body experiences? Uh, healing our separation from spirit, self-hate, spiritual materialism. where it, by the way, has this fantastic uh story of of Ramda's uh, going into this incredible meditation uh, space uh with that's uh, Swami Muktananda's ashram, and then just a bit later, um, in a cave that he, a rent-a-cave that he got, uh, and there's something on fasting. It, it's, by the way, in more than one of these, uh, answers that he gives, and, and speaking specifically here about when you get into a separation of of a relationship and the death of a dream and, you know, you're in a lot of pain and there's so much attachment, there's grieving, and it doesn't have to be, uh, it could be somebody dying, it could be a a separation in any which way. Um, The emphasis is on witness. Witness is such an important thing. I don't know how many times in any of these uh, podcasts and these talks that we've pulled from these podcasts where that is uh, a primary cultivation factor to be able to uh, to handle life and handle uh suffering, and the other one is of course self hate um, when you ide- when you have that which we all have, and Ramdas describes it here himself about I'm just a fake and a phony and I'm teaching all this stuff, but I'm not fully living it you know, and we all do this I mean even when i when I give my own personal experience about some of these subjects uh, on these podcasts. And uh, I can hear myself if I'm pontificating a little bit, because maybe I'm not totally, have, have ex- totally experienced what I'm saying, and it's out of my intellect. And so then I start to identify with that um, feeling like a fake kind of stuff, you know, and unworthiness and all of that. So we, we all do that every day. Witness. It's such an important thing, and uh, what it does, and you get a little bit of space when when you can do that, to allow yourself to have all of the human stuff that happens, and eventually it fades away, especially when you do have a little bit of space, and uh, you can relax. And as he says, relax and see the poignancy of the conditioning of the mind. So... um Good stuff here. Uh, what else did I want to point out? Somebody, by the way, told me it's okay to point out the different highlights of the talk, but don't tell the stories because that ruins it for us. So I'm taking that um, as something that I should shut up about. So I will. Um, dealing with fear. I. Th- this is uh, because that's something that we all confront so often, and it's such a, uh, it can have such a hold on us. Um, and so the advisal here, of course, is uh, is to not, res- we usually react, you know, tremendously with fear. And we create resistance uh, against it, whatever we're afraid of. So here, again, allow yourself to notice the resistance. So witness, again. Witness, and keep softening. Now, this this is maybe not so directly understandable. Keep softening. What does that mean? Embrace it into yourself. I think recently he's been talking about um, love your thoughts to death. That may even give a better direct understanding of softening and embracing it into yourself. That you you have a thought, or you have a which fear is a thought. Uh, an emotion, uh, some your heart starts to beat a little fast for whatever reason, and you take a few breaths into the center of your chest. And I think his thing around loving awareness is really a useful practice. I am loving awareness. And as as much as you can get into that space is as much as you can embrace that fear, and that's the softening so that it doesn't have that grip and um, so the resistance against something, of course, makes it more intense, and it enhances the fear. So resistance—that's something to notice—the uh, quality of of what that is, and how how that uh, relates to enhancing the fear. Eventually, you just see the fear as a process that comes out of conditioning and identification. Okay, the conditioning that we have in not just in this life, from previous lives, karma, and and big time the identification with who we think we are. So, very wise words here. Um, an interesting thing about uh, abortion, everybody, you know what a tough subject that is. Um, and I th- I found it interesting where he talks about the collective karma of the parents and the uh, being that's coming in. Uh, is th- it's. That's what's involved. It's not somebody who makes a decision. Uh, I mean, making a decision so you can be free of the situation, of course, that's that obviously would create karma. Um, but the real point is, how much does your awareness get caught in the effect of the act? And what determines the karma is the intentionality of the act. I mean, that uh, So you'll, you'll hear him talk more about that. I mean, it's a very delicate subject, but... Uh, um i I believe that to be true that the karma that's involved is of the three souls, not just one um and another interesting thing is this thing around how does one know one has out of body experiences you know people have all kinds of experiences, of course, the mind is capable of convincing itself that an experience is happening when it's not maybe not happening, but the What's what I found more important for me in any of these kind of situations is not to preoccupy myself with what the experience is, as Ramdas says here. It's more, what, it's it's about intuition, and you you feel deep down in a deep place in yourself. I mean, and you can, uh, it's readily more readily available to me in dreams when you have one of those significant dreams. Um, for me it might have been a dream about maharaji or a significant meaning um i'll have some consciousness in the dream that i'm dreaming or i'll wake up and i'll i'll that presence will be there in waking consciousness as well and so obviously at that level you you, you get a combination of knowing and intuition and it's usually uh, stuff that happens in waking consciousness that mind plays tricks on but the reality is the experience is what the experience is offering in terms of a deeper understanding no matter what even if your intellect is taking you over and you know whatever you're a little bit of uh, projecting an an astral plane jumping um so that deeper understanding can people can use that for their personal growth and and uh Last but not least, the entire journey of the spiritual awakening is the healing from the entrapment of one's separateness. Doesn't he come up with pithy stuff? I love that. That was from a question about how do we heal our separation from spirit, and our whole life is about that. Um, I want to, uh, before I, I was meaning to do this, before I went on about, the, this talk, we have, uh, and I've mentioned it before, we have this wonderful book, Love Everyone, which is all of our experiences who went to India and followed Ramdas the second time he went back and told our stories, and Parvati Marcus, uh, my ex, uh, collected these stories and edited them and uh, wrote the narrative that pulls it all together. It's a beautiful book. And it's published by Harper One. It will be available on November 10th. But we need your help because the more we need you to go to ramdas.org and, uh, or you can go ramdasorg slash love everyone or just go to ramdas.org, which has a beautiful new home page, by the way. And the top banner, you can just click on it and it'll take you to a page. Please pre-order the book. The more pre-orders we get, Harper will print more copies. Amazon will take more copies. Barnes & Noble will take more copies. And all the independent bookstores around the country. So we would really appreciate, this would be, uh, yeah, we really want to get this book. This will be like a Miracle of Love, Part 2 Or Son of Miracle of Love. Or Daughter. Uh... It's uh, not joking around. It is a great book. And it really uh, will enhance many people's um, grokking, using an old 60s term, of who this being Maharaji is through the eyes of all of these young Westerners who went to India in the, the early 70s. So, uh, please do that, and uh, that will go a long way to uh, helping us get the book out. You'll be part of that. No, there's a cool tree. When you go to the page, you'll see the pre-order buttons for Amazon and Barnes & Noble. You'll see some quotes and pictures from the book. And then at the bottom, we put together this family tree with Maharaji in the middle, and People like Ramdas, Krishnadas, and Danny Goldman, and Larry Brilliant, and Parvati Marcus, and all all sorts of people that were in India. Uh, and uh, you can click on a video, which is you just hit the bottom the button. By the way, at the very bottom of the infographic, and it'll keep taking you to another person when you can read and hear their stories and watch their stories. So, okay, enough said. Ramdas here and now, and this is our smorgasbord. Q&A. See you next time.
1: Can I speak about separation when somebody is ending a relationship to which you are still attached? When something ends and you have still attachment, whether somebody dies or leaves you or something that you had is lost, there is a grief period its call and it has to run its course you can't rush it or push it and if you try to get over it too fast it sits under there and just keeps corrupting the whole process and you're really not in a position to get involved in other things for a while for a good while so settle down and take up knitting or something And expect you're going to go under and come up and go under and come up and don't rush it. Just get to understand that grief runs its course and it may take you a year or two to come up for air. And it's okay. There's plenty of time. Just relax. Yeah, it hurts. And it's all right. That's part of our human process. But in the meantime, while all that's going on, cultivate that part of you that witnesses the whole process. And say, ah, I'm depressed, ah, I'm coming up. And just notice it, understanding that it too will pass. That whole quality, it too shall pass, and this too shall pass, and this too shall pass. But don't try to make it pass too soon. Okay? Because the death of a dream hurts. It hurts to the extent you have invested in the dream. All right. If you get so that you can let go of the dream immediately, so much the better. And you get so that your consciousness is so light that as each dream ends, you're already letting go. You're already letting go. And you're ready for the next moment. But until you're ready for that, don't rush. Go through the grief. Relax. Go slow. Questions. The practical aspects of dealing with fear. Um, when I am afraid of something, I, what I do is I come up as close to it as I can... And I sit with it, and I watch my reactivity of wanting to create resistance against it, that which I'm afraid of. And I allow that myself to notice the resistance and keep softening about it by bringing to mind that which, fea- which I fear, and keep doing like this to it, which is like embracing it into myself, rather than... Because I- the resistance against something exacerbates the fear. There's no doubt about it. So that by just having commerce with it as close as you can get comfortably and then just sitting with it, seeing the boundaries, noticing the quality of your fear, just being with it. Don't push, don't grab, just see it as a process that comes out of conditioning, of identification. You can go back into the root of fear, which is identification. Because as long as you think you're something that's as vulnerable, you're going to be afraid. So if you're going to get rid of the root cause of the fear, the work is to work spiritually on yourself, not to deal with the fear directly. That's just a symptom of the faulty identification. So you work on the identification. But in the meantime, when you want to use the fear itself to awaken, go close to it and sit with it and just play with the edge of it. Play with the edge of it. Okay. Abortion and the karma involved. Um, uh, Trungpa Rinpoche, the uh, Tibetan rascal, the Lama that I know, um, he once was describing to me how a um, that a fetus and the parents, the two beings involved, the three beings involved, that their collective um, karmic needs determine whether or not abortion happens and that it is not really, from a spiritual point of view, uh, The way, if that being is not to be aborted, the minds of the parents won't move that way, and they won't allow it. If it is to be aborted, they can try their best not to, and it will happen. It fe- the sense is that it is the collective karma of the three beings involved. The individual karmic effect of... Um, ...of a person's choice, which they think they're making by themselves, but they're really not. I mean, they're just—that's just an effect of this collective uh, consciousness. But whether or not your intention in aborting has to do with... ...from what level of compassion it comes determines what the karmic effect is on you individually... ...in terms of how much your awareness gets caught in the effects of the act which is what karma is what i'm saying is an act done what determines karma is the intentionality of the act when an act is done in order to prevent suffering of other beings then the act has a different kind of karmic effect than an act which is done in order to preserve your own freedom for example so that the nature of the karma ...for an individual in the act of, prof- of having an abortion has to do with their own intention. But the actual way at which it happens is a result of the collective souls involved. And it's not really... The person who thinks they're making the decision is only representing the result of all that. There are no errors in the game, is what I'm saying. Nobody gets aborted that wasn't meant to. And a lot of beings just drop down to do a little work in the fetus and then leave... And it's not a terrible error. There's no way you can have a rule book about this stuff. You can't say abortion's always bad or abortion is okay. You just can't do it. The only way a human being knows is to listen to the most deep, intuitive place inside themselves to know what to do. I just can't hear a rule that's clear in my mind about it. Yes? About what? About smoking cigarettes. What I said Tuesday night... Where was that? At Disneyland? What I said Tuesday night about smoking cigarettes? <laughs> I hardly remember Disneyland, let alone what I said about cigarettes. Let me... Can you give me a clue? <laughs> oh, okay. Okay. Uh, <laughs> the... Um, I think that all these things are, uh, these kinds of addictions of which this culture is loaded, I mean, with addictions to lots and lots of things, I think they are all symptoms of uh, fear. And that if you're going to go for the root of it, you, just like in this question about the fear, you go for the deeper understanding of. Who you are and you work, sometimes it isn't good to do direct on. What I've noticed is that with certain kinds of obsessions that I have, as my spiritual awareness and my connection to spirit gets deeper and I get calmer in that domain, a lot of these things fall away of themselves. Furthermore, how do you know? I mean, uh, many of us know people who smoke. To ripe old ages and die from something else and then we know people who die from cancer of the lungs from c- cigarette smoking uh, people drive in cars and die from driving um, i don't I, i've noticed people die from all kinds of things and i can't really say you should stop all of them to prevent your dying because being people do die and i'm not sure it matters which way you go i mean emphysema is a little bit of a drag but it's good work Um, so, um, I'm not inclined to tell people to stop anything, I just say, look at what all is about and then do what you do. But as you go for the deeper parts of your being, a lot of that stuff falls away. The things that you would do that wouldn't honor and preserve. The body is such a beautiful temple for doing inner work that you, you tend not to want to drop it sooner than you need to. You don't want to hold it longer than you have to. This is a fine line. But you don't want to drop it earlier than you need to. So there's this one of listening to hear and to honoring the body properly. And that's about what I can say. Yeah. Um, the issue of the relationship between strengthening the ego and the ego's effectiveness in the world and also getting free of attachment. Um, uh, two th- two things I'd say. There are sequences in all this. First of all, I said last night, and I repeat, you've got to become somebody before you can become nobody. If you try to short-circuit it, you screw up. You've got to get your ground before you have enough ground from which to do the deeper work, all right? So a lot of people have to go back into getting their ego acts together and get thing. And so you might end up having to do therapy, do all kinds of stuff to get it together. Just remember, your therapist probably isn't Buddha and probably thinks personality is real. So don't look at them for spirit, because they probably think they're a therapist. So don't look at them for spiritual sustenance. Look at them as body and fender repair people that are there to clean up that level of the act. All right. As you get yourself together and you sort of get your ground, then you can do the inner work of finding that part of you that is not ego so that that part can become you can become established in that transcendent awareness then you can use your ego as a servant rather than be mastered by it all right so it's a sequential balance all right and those part those people it's then you are merely doing the ego things that are appropriate to your unique uh incarnation no big deal about it then you're not playing for power or anything because you don't your ego isn't that interesting anymore I mean you just rent it out you know yes how does one know that one has had an out-of-the-body experience Um, I'll tell you the line between dream states hallucination uh, visions and uh, experiences uh, such as that are very very subtle and I uh, I'm not sure the mind can't con itself continually to convince itself that it's having something that it's not actually having. I, um, let me see how I deal with this. It's an interesting question. Um, I mean, there's no legitimizing organization. You can't get three rabbis together that'll uh, assure you that you had an out of the body experience that I know of. I'll tell you, I don't, the way I deal with it is, I take, like dreams, I don't particularly preoccupy myself with what they are, merely what the experience is offering me in terms of some deepening understanding of, that I can use in my own growth. Now, the feeling I have had of being out of my body, I just know it's a feeling I have had of being out of my body. The psychologist in me will say, interesting hallucination. The other part of me will say I have been out of my body I have no idea which one of them is right I don't even care What I feel though is that experience Has given me a much more intuitive strength See at the intuitive level I understand At the intellectual level I don't The way the intellect wants to know it knows That's the way you're praising the question How do I know I know that I've had an out of body experience And my answer is the intellect just doesn't know intuitively i just feel the validity of something and that validity colors my future life that's all i can do but i can't know it intellectually i don't know how to do it know it feels extremely strong and valid when it happens yes. sir in healing our separation from the spirit from the one yeah i think everything i'm teaching is concerned with how to I mean, the entire journey of spiritual awakening is the healing from the entrapment in one's separation, separateness. And that is all done through a variety of techniques. The quieting the mind techniques of meditation are designed to extricate you from the thought forms that reinforce your separateness. And tomorrow we're going to be doing some meditative practice. The mantra... All these techniques that open the heart and quiet the mind are designed to... The, opening the heart allows you to merge back into the unity through love. Quieting the mind allows you to get out from the thoughts that keep veiling the, you from your total identity. These are all techniques. Uh, studying Course in Miracles, getting a philosophical context... To see the events of life in a different way, as we have talking about, as vehicles for awakening. That also are... These are all methods that I'm talking about. Yes. Yeah. Uh, She said that when we were doing the meditation, I was uh, suggesting that you see compassion and love towards the tiny being that was yourself. She just felt... What did you say? Hatred towards herself. And uh, all you do is... See, the question is how much you identify with that hatred and how much you just notice that quality. See, I mean, you've got to cultivate that witness in you. The witness doesn't hate and it doesn't love. It just notices. Don't jump to try to love yourself from that. Just get into the place of noticing. Ah, there's loathing. Ah, there's hatred. Right? And then allow yourself to have all that human stuff and it keeps falling away. Be very gentle. It's okay. Um, I have fed, had years of feeling unworthiness and inadequacy and fraudulence. And the more people would say, oh, you're thank you so much. You've helped me. You're wonderful. The more horrible I would feel. And, I mean, I've been through lots of this. And finally, I just began to... Instead of taking it so seriously, just relaxing and sort of seeing the poignancy of all of the conditioning of my mind. And all these techniques, I couldn't get rid of it directly. I just kept cultivating these other spiritual qualities in my being. And then suddenly, these other parts of me were all right. I was was just, I, I have a right to exist. I am. I just, not good, not bad, just am. I kept going behind good and evil. There's a great line from G. Manley Hall that says... One who knows not that the prince of darkness is but the other face of the king of light knows not me." That's the idea of the one behind the two. See, And behind, I love you and I hate you, is I am you. Or, oh, all right, so you keep going for that one. I'm trying to spread around. Yes, sir. Uh, Spiritual materialism and the Rajneesh movement. Well, um, it's very hard to interpret um, a tantric teacher's teachings, first of all. Whether they are really rascals or scoundrels, it's hard to know. Um, A tantric teacher can play outrageously with the stuff of life as a vehicle for liberating you. Like, I can't imagine that anybody needs 92 Rolls Royces or whatever it is. It's like an exquisite toying with uh, the kind of uh, opulent preoccupations of the culture. I mean, I see it as playful. The stuff, on the other hand, that was done in Oregon in relation to other people and all that, my heart didn't feel good about it. It didn't feel right on. And I just know intuitively whether something feels good, and that didn't feel good to me at all. The paranoia, the whole business. Um, The... Some teachers, I've watched uh, some Tibetan teachers and people like that, see that the Westerners are so um, obsessed or needful about material stuff that often the teachers push the person more into it first to burn them out because there is an awful lot of phony holiness that happens in spirituality where people push stuff away a little prematurely and they get left with that kind of deep hunger for stuff, but their values don't allow them to, uh, to cop to it, right? I mean, I don't want to take another berth for a jaguar, and if I have to get one, I'll get the damn thing just to get done with it, right? I don't think I need it, because I've already had an old one, and it burns, so enough already. But at any rate, I mean, I can see the issue, and I can watch that in some traditions, some tantric teachers have forced their students into materiality and into s- all kinds of sexuality and stuff, and the rest of the society said, this is terrible, this is horrible. I remember Trunk Rinpoche, when I went to teach at Naropa in Boulder, his students all seemed to be drunk, um, partying, having a lot of sexual stuff. They were all very materialist, and I thought, boy, what a terrible teacher this guy is. And he was drunk, and the whole thing was so weird, you know? <laughs> And I came back a year later and those same students were doing hundred thousand prostrations and doing deep meditations And I saw that what he did was he forced them through some stuff and took them beyond So I'm very reticent to interpret another person's teachings all I can say to each person is Listen to your intuitive heart as to whether an experience is helping you grow And if it is and it's not hurting another human being fine if it's hurting somebody else or if you don't feel quite right about it, even if everybody around you is telling you it's wonderful, forget it. You've got to trust your intuitive heart. There's no other way. You can't trust me because I don't know. I mean, I, may, I'm, you know, I don't know what's coming between me and an understanding of who Rajneesh is. I really have no idea who he is. I don't want to be him. I know that, but I don't know who he is. <laughs> yeah. Um, spiritual materialism... Um, Is um, the attachment to subtle material planes and subtle immaterial planes is um, Very very much more pervasive in spiritual life than most people understand the attachment to bliss the attachment to rapture the attachment to Powers to the what are called the cities the attachment to out-of-body experiences all this stuff isn't freedom at all it's just another level of material uh, attachment and i think that it's another one of those um we translate we transfer from wanting a a material thing like a new oven to wanting to feel bliss and um all of this is personality stuff what you find is that the spiritual journey you're on really reflects your personality That your personality determines, in large part, which spiritual journey you're on and what you go after. And all you can do is cultivate the witnessing part of yourself that notices the way you do it. And just the way you presented the question, you're hearing your own predicament. And you keep sitting with it, watching it all keep running off again and again, and seeing the material things turn out not to be the thing you wanted. And um, a lot of the um, stuff about out of body is, it's not freedom. It's not spiritual freedom. It's just, like, I went out of my body once. I was given a mantra by a very dear friend, Swami Muktananda. And um, one day, I was in his ashram in India, and I was put into his inner meditation room. I was doing this mantra, which he gave it to me, see, and he, he... Gave it to me in a very special ceremony, and then I said, what is this for, Baba? He said, it'll give you vast wealth and vast power. And, you know, as a Jewish boy, um, so I said to him, I said, I don't want vast wealth and vast power unless I can have an equal amount of compassion and truth. See, that's my Boy Scout thing. And he said, just do the mantra. I cut the bullshit and just do the mantra. So... I did it. I couldn't stop doing it. I mean, I, you can imagine. I mean, I was doing it night and day and waiting, measuring, you know, have I got it yet, you know. And um, so I was in his meditation, this inner meditation room, and it was very hot in there, and I took off all my clothes, and I was lying there, and I got ripped out of my body, and I got brought to another plane, and I was in a doorway, and I looked inside, and there was Swami Muktananda sitting on a, a table bed, and I came in and I kneeled in front of him. And as I looked up at him, I came up and I started to fly. And I'd always wanted to fly. I mean, I'm a pilot, but it's not the same thing. I mean, I really wanted to fly. And I was flying. And I was looking down over his head. And then I thought, well, now I can fly. Where will I go? And I couldn't think of anywhere I wanted to go. Which was an interesting thing. All I, I wanted to fly, but I, you know, in the old days, I wanted to fly because I was a voyeurist. And I wanted to see what was going on everywhere. But that had burned out. And so um, at that moment, I tilted. I mean, I started to go offside. And I went to correct myself because I didn't have much faith. And I found myself back in the meditation hall. It was only about 20 minutes later. And I was in kind of a state of ecstasy. This was at about 2.30 in the morning. And so I, I was locked in this little room. And I knocked. I made noise. And they came and unlocked the door. And I went out into the courtyard. And there was Swami Muktananda with one of his people who was a translator. And he came over to me and he said, how did you like flying? Okay. So um, I knew, he knew, and, you know, okay. So I couldn't stop doing the mantra. And then I went to a, uh, a cave north of there. It's like a renta cave. Um, where they put you in and they have two windows and they open a window and put the food in and then you open the other window and you take it out and you don't see anybody and you can rent it for a week or a month or a year. And, and uh, so I was in there um, and... Um, I was doing the mantra, and I, again, was hot, and I took off all my clothes, and I was doing the mantra, and I got taken out of my body, and I got brought to a room on another plane, and I looked in, and there was my guru sitting there, this guy. And um, I fell at his feet, and he went... He put his blanket over his head and did three big breaths, and I felt like I was an inner tube being filled, like... And suddenly... I was back down in the Rent-A-Cave and the mantra was gone. I couldn't even remember it. He had taken it away from me. And later when I saw him about a week or two later, he said to me, all he would say about the thing was, it's good to meditate naked. And that was all he would cop to about the whole thing. Now, I feel like I was taken through something, that I was obsessed with it, I got it, I saw how empty it was, and then I it got done with. And I don't know that I have to go through it more and more. I have no idea. All I know is we keep going through thinking we've got something and then seeing it's nothing. And you let it go. But you can't let it go in advance with your mind. You just have to keep playing with these things. But they say in the spiritual things, when you get powers, don't use them. If they are to be used, they will be used through you. In spite of you. Not because of you. You don't do it. And that's a tricky one, because there is a tendency to want to do good. And that's the one that traps you on the way to freedom. Freedom is beyond doing good. Finally, freedom is being good, not doing good. That's a whole different level of the ball game. Yes. Um, how do I see my need to speak and teach? Uh, I love this expression, one who knows does not speak, and he who speaks does not know. You know, I always see that's I reflect on that. Um, I see, um, I, many times I have felt that it came from such an impure place, I would give it up, and then I would find it would happen again, that people would ask, and I would do it, and I would respond again, and then I would give it up, and then I'd start again, and I keep giving it up and coming back into it in a less attached way, and more I feel, um... It's like hearing what one's unique form of expression in the universe is. I don't feel it... I don't feel much personal power in this trip at all. This is this the form of me up here and you there and all that stuff is very empty to me. It doesn't... It That plus 50 cents gets you on the bus. I mean, it doesn't... I can't milk it for anything. It doesn't... There's not a personal trip in it. I feel like we are in a process together And I die into becoming a mouth for a process. That's roughly what I feel like in this thing. And it feels very graceful that I can do it. Um, I don't feel that this is a power in the sense of a personal power at all. Am I dealing with your question or not? Yeah. Yeah. When I fasted, how it's helped me spiritually. Well, uh, when I've done long fasts, I first of all felt the need to be um, pretty much alone when I was doing it. I find that my emotions get very motile, and I'm very uh, it's very delicate to be in a lot of stuff going on. I can't fast when I'm doing this kind of stuff. When I'm alone and I'm fasting, so I don't really know whether it's the aloneness or the fasting that's doing it, the level of my sensitivity to um, the quality of... How to describe it? I'll, let me give you an example. Um... Sitting in Kosani in India doing a fast. First few days, I've got pictures of my guru around. I'm, I'm looking at them, I'm thinking of his stories and so on. Fasted for a few days. Feel the pictures are just paper, un- irrelevant. Put them away, put them under the mattress. Feel his presence in the room. Fast a few more days. Wake up, he's not there. Feel I've fallen from grace. What have I done wrong? This is all spiritual materialism, by the way. Suddenly aware something in my heart. Realize that he's now inside of me. Feel just at peace. Fast ends start to eat. Pretty soon putting pictures back up. Okay? So uh, it's allowed me to tune to another subtler place. There's a great story about the music stand maker, the king's music stand maker, and the king says, you make such beautiful music stands, how do you do it? And he said, sire, there's nothing to it. He said, I go out in the woods and I fast for five days until I forget I am the king's music stand maker. Then I fast for five more days until I forget I'm making a music stand. He says, and then I'm walking through the woods and I see a music stand and it's surrounded by a tree and I clean it away he says there's nothing more than that to it okay it's, whatever that story means yeah do I see value in and would I be willing to participate in organized men's gatherings um, I'll tell you I kind of feel I mean I do honor that we are learning how I'm gonna stop Jai. <laughs> don't hit me um, that we are um, having to deal with a lot of distortions we've had about different qualities of our existence. And in the same way as I could be part of from my cultural my uh, incarnation, I could be part of a Jewish group, a men's group, a Boston group, you know uh, uh, a bisexual group. I mean I've got a lot of groups I could be part of. Um, I kind of feel that from where I am, the frame of reference I'm living in now is where my identity isn't very much with those things. And uh, so to create a group that defines itself that way is to me reinforcing something about separateness. And if it's done from a spiritual point of view where you're using it to, like I met with a group of businessmen the other day they're businessmen, right? And but they're beings who are being businessmen. And my job is to show them how they can use business to go beyond business. Now, to use menness to go beyond menness, because who? When I look at all of you, I don't really—I'm not really seeing men and women. I mean, I can look and see that. What I'm seeing is fellow souls. That's what I'm really seeing when I look out at this group. And I really. I mean i know everybody's got i see young and old and i can do all that but that really isn't what i meet and what i hug from moment to moment now and then somebody comes on with such a strong identity that it sucks me in you know and i'm hugging somebody but for the most part it's just souls meeting in the night and uh can you hear that yeah
0: this podcast is brought to you by the love serve remember foundation